A stone skull rests in the blackened waters of an eerie lagoon. Inside, a young boy rests lazily with a cap over his eyes. He speaks in the voice of the villainous Captain Hook, bewildering the first mate. But little does he realize that the monstrous shadow of Hook is climbing the rocks behind him, inching closer and closer, ready to snuff him out. And welcome once again to Disney's Demons. I'm here today to talk about the 1953 animated classic Peter Pan. And today I am joined by a really special guest. She works at the Department of English Drama and Film at UCD in Dublin. She's written for numerous publications and she's appeared on many podcasts such as The Escapist and The 250. Films are very much her jam, and as you will learn over the course of this podcast, she really knows her stuff. My guest today is Stacey Groudon. Hello, Stacey. Hi, Steve. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. How are things? Good. Yeah, uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Can I ask you a question before we get started? How many times have you poked me on Facebook this week? <laughs> More times than I've poked, I think, anybody else on Facebook <laughs> in the past 10 years. Do you think many people know that Facebook still has a poke feature? Because I completely forgot about that until I started getting <laughs> notifications about this. I hadn't thought about Facebook pokes again for probably about 10 years. <laughs> and because of, because Facebook has changed so much, it does seem like the kind of thing they would like very quietly take away. Right. Well, and it's no still there. It. Do you think people have been poking each other for the last 10 years? Like, I don't like think so. Anything? I think people think it's gone. So like for our listeners, like get... Get poking, like it's a real thing still. Like you know, poke Let's your bring friends. Poking back on. <laughs> so, um, Stacey, I met you back in. Oh, oh my God! Just, it just scared me how long ago it was that we met. We met back in our first year of college. We studied in the same course and mm -hmm. pretty much instant best friends because we were both pretty nerdy. I think it's fair to say. Pretty much yeah. what happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and whereas I kind of uh, veered off to, you know, teach, you know, Japanese kids English in, in Japan, um, you really doubled down on like film literacy and just like how to read a film like this, the mm -hmm. you, you've written for so many outlets and that kind of thing. So I want to take advantage of um, your media knowledge, basically, <laughs> just to talk a little bit about our podcast in general here, because mm -hmm. I think. I'd like to hear what you have to say about the idea of just horror in Disney. Mm -hmm. Just, just broadly, just across. Yeah, just quite. I Disney? mean, yeah. When, when I started this, um, I just was thinking of some of the really dark moments that you like see in classic Disney movies, like mm -hmm. the um, the Queen and Snow White turning into the old mm -hmm. crone, or um, for example, Jafar when he turns into a snake in Aladdin. You know, just yeah. random bits like that that really, I think can traumatize a lot of kids and just the relevance of disney movies like you know in the media the realm of media and like <laughs> how, how do you feel first of all about disney first of all as just general entertainment and mm. also in terms of, of its relevancy like to the world 
Yeah, I mean, you can look at Disney as having this chokehold on the culture in a way. Like, mm. more so now than ever with, with Disney Plus and everything that comes under the banner of Disney, right? And people engaging with media primarily through streaming and primarily through, like, huge streaming services and having access as well, not just to current content on Disney Plus but being able to go back and look at older stuff and I'm sure this will come up when we talk about Peter Pan but seeing how certain things have changed or not mm-hmm. changed over time but because that you know it does have that hold and you see this around you know award season as well right that the best animated feature Oscar was brought in in the early 2000s maybe uh yeah like I, that was yeah. brought in basically in response to Pixar just crushing it. You, and I have a feeling Disney you still probably... kind of dominates that. Hmm? Hmm. I, I, was, I was going to say, I feel like you might know this better than I. Has there ever been a year when Disney wasn't in that category? Ever? <laughs> uh, I can't say yes or no definitively, but even when you have much better animated films coming out from smaller studios, so or even, you know, qu- quite large studios like Studio Ghibli or illumination or even the cartoon saloon movies that have done really really well in award season and recent I'm glad years. you brought them up yeah they're excellent yeah the general <laughs> impression from kind of an industry and voter standpoint seems to be that like the disney film is just going to win by default because more people will have seen it and more people have familiarity with disney as a brand and mm. if you are just- looking at there's times when I feel like that is that obviously it feels very unfair when you put it that way. But there are other times where, for example, like last year when Encanto came out, I, mm-hmm. I watched that movie and I kind of felt, well, to be fair, the things they're doing like in that particular feature are kind of astronomical. The way they change people's perceptions yeah. on a lot of uh, typical cultural uh, perspectives and that kind of thing. I uh, That really blew me away. But then mm-hmm. when you have other movies like the likes of just off the top of my head meet the robinsons which i've never mm-hmm. seen but i'm 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 certainly <laughs> i'm making i'm making an assumption about its quality i'm not gonna lie i just to be sure. to, to give another example bolt which was the last film we did which is certainly sure. not bolt. good example you know it's it's not like a high standard film it's it's a entertaining enough film mm-hmm. but you know i think it's the kind of thing that i would it's like low tier like illumination kind of job absolutely so when you see films like that in the best animation category you can't help but feel like you know disney kind of has its claws into the academy a little bit yeah it's like every year a disney film will get nominated if a disney film comes out that year and Mm. you know while you can say that what do awards mean really there is this extra level of visibility and of affirming its status as the you know primary animated film producer in the world and when you see what else is out there it seems a little unfair in many ways absolutely yeah i wonder how many people saw the breadwinner for example you know so just yeah and i mean i mean this is the thing the breadwinner and i'm gonna go on a very slight tangent because that's just a film (laughs) i love but um that's a film that despite it's it has dark themes it presents it in such a way that it is accessible to children which Mm -hmm. i think is really phenomenal um Mm -hmm. but again it's just it's just the fact it's the brand name you know when you go like if you if you were babysitting like a bunch of kids and you say let's watch a disney movie the automatic reaction is yay but you know what if you were like 
okay, we're watching Song of the South. It's like, oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not Song of the South, the uh, the Uncle Remus thing, the band one. That's, yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, I don't think we should uh, show that to children ever. <laughs> I was yeah. shown that as a child. Just um, <gasps> I, I used to have that on VHS. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Imagine what that would but, be worth now. Yeah, I don't know what ever happened to it. Um but yeah, just um, well, just side note. In ter- I mean, so we've talked about um, Disney in terms of its relevancy to the world, but like, how do you feel about Disney movies? You know, when they come out, are you usually excited like when they come out, or is it like a film by film basis? Or what was your childhood like in terms of watching Disney? In terms of Disney, I mean, I was a bit of a Disney kid. I'm sure we'll get into this like later when we're actually talking about the film. But Peter Pan was never one of my favorites. I don't know if that's a gender thing or if it's my age my generation my gender like i was a child in the 90s when all the big disney princess movies were coming out so like Mm -hmm. aladdin beauty and the beast little mermaid were the ones that i really really loved which maybe that has something to do with the music as well they all have really amazing scores and soundtracks and peter pan somewhat lacking in that peter pan Mm -hmm. also an older movie so i don't know if that has anything to do with it as well but even something like Mary Poppins, which is from a similar era of Disney, is hmm. a very different film, especially in terms of its gender politics. Not yes. that not that the Disney princess ones I've just mentioned have particularly good gender politics. Oh, but, this uh, one this one kind of takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? So. This one's dark. I think dark in a way that's very interesting from our perspective today as well. Yes. Uh, in yeah. terms of the role of a woman in a household as part of a family unit. But yeah, I mean, I really loved those Disney movies as a kid. Now, you know, I watch them. I do appreciate them. I do still think they are possibly because they have more money than God, like at the cutting edge of <laughs> yes. what is possible to do in an animated film. Like again, you've just mentioned Encanto and the animation in Encanto is really, really incredible. The sound, mm-hmm. the songs, again, really, really incredible. They do have the money and the resources to make something like this work right. really, really well. Um I did enjoy it that and turning red which actually deal with sort of similar themes I thought oh my god I'm going to I'm going to have to yeah. put a pin in that let's talk about that after the podcast because I will talk we'll for pin hours that. about turning around because that's just such turning a good movie around. yeah but um, yeah I, I love them I really appreciate Disney movies now I think it's possible to do that while still acknowledging that like again because of their position in the world yeah they hold a lot of influence and sway in a way that's maybe troubling and do you think there's a certain level of enjoyment that you can get from like when a Disney film is good, you can certainly acknowledge the fact that, and I know this will reach so many households. So like this positive Mm. message that they're bringing to it is going out to so many people. I forget, I forget her name, but it's another example that comes to mind. It's um, in Encanto, Mirabelle's really strong sister. I forget her name. Yes. She's amazing. Yes. So that her entire arc in that movie is just such a, satisfying and joyful thing to watch and it sends such a positive yeah. message i mean again i could t- i could rave about encanto that's a film that i absolutely mm. adored when it yeah. came out it was such a good movie yeah. encanto does that really wonderful thing as well that like a lot of ghibli movies do which is like making something literal through animation yeah like an emotion or uh you know a, a familial role you know she takes on so much of the burden from the rest yes. of the family and they, <laughs> it's great. they make that very literal by making her very very strong and i really mm. loved that kind of detail 
yeah, yeah. go on sorry yeah um yeah no no just i just i'm glad that you agree like i mean it is it's it's a wonderful feeling when you know this message this really positive message is reaching like sure. so many children this because that's the thing like i mean the both of us like i think it's fair to say we both enjoy disney movies even despite the fact that we're in our 30s and like they're just you know that's sorry <laughs> sorry to reveal that i can edit that out if you want me yeah. to <laughs> but like <laughs> that's fine that's fine <laughs> but i mean would you say that disney movies are first and foremost for kids now as opposed to earlier on um are they now i mean i know in the early days of sort of animated disney films there wasn't really that distinction of films for kids and now in our current media landscape everything is put in these little boxes and is divided up to target like particular demographics of of viewers and it's possible that they're making a lot of content for kids there's a lot of stuff as well that i feel like is pitched at kids but also has this secondary level of nostalgia for the Mm -hmm. kids parents i think we're seeing that more than ever now with say you know the star wars spin-off shows marvel spin-off shows that you're kind of building kind of intergenerational links between the media that parents would have watched and the media that their kids are now engaging with Hmm. you're seeing that a lot more i mean there was always those direct-to-video sequels in the 90s (laughs) we're building on very old disney films like return to neverland actually is a sequel to peter pan that came out around that time just actually on a side note there just very quick Mm. side note have you seen that movie because i haven't i just wonder what it's like yeah i will admit now i'm not familiar with the peter pan sequels or the tinkerbell spin-offs which appear to be hugely popular among a certain group of small girls and i Mm. do find it interesting that they turn tinkerbell into a disney princess of sorts considering the way they characterize tinkerbell in this movie very yeah that's that's very true that's uh they take a very different direction they almost completely change her character they i mean um, no almost about they do seemingly apparently yeah that that she becomes this i seem to remember watching at least half of one of those movies once and Mm -hmm. i think yeah it it just it it, she's got this uh, air of like i just want to help people understand the power of friendship and it's like well jesus that's a (laughs) a fair departure from like the, the previous iteration yeah, again, I haven't seen it, but even just by making her the lead character in a sort of spin-off franchise, I suppose it speaks to, again, them wanting to build on, you know, nostalgic affection for Tinkerbell, but also needing another, like, pretty little blonde girl to make yeah, a I, series of films about. You can even tell, I mean, just, I mean, if you're anything like me, the most exposure you've got to this is probably just, like, those covers or, like, wh- when they pop up on Disney+. Plus. You just see, like, the front thing. Mm-hmm. But just the way Tinkerbell looks in comparison to before, mm-hmm. she's got much softer features and, like, mm-hmm. she's got a very warm, inviting kind of expression on her face almost always. Mm-hmm. Compare mm-hmm. that with, like, I mean, my impression of Tinkerbell, the, Tinkerbell the original Peterbell, is usually when she's glowing mm-hmm. red and she's got, like, literally fiery demon eyes like when she gets jealous of things and uh so it's it's a completely different character so yeah yeah. i I was actually quite shocked to watch this movie which i hadn't seen since i was a child and probably quite a young child i might have been seven or eight the last time i watched peter pan before i watched it for this podcast and she really is quite mean and jealous for most of this movie yeah she spends more time being unhelpful than she does actually yeah helping anybody 
And um, we'll talk about that. Just one more point I want to make before we get into the Mm -hmm. film itself is uh, Mm -hmm. just in respects to... So my motivation for starting this entire podcast is, as we said, this... Disney has a stranglehold of sorts on like the entertainment industry. Um, every, I feel like every kid in the vast majority of the world looks forward to uh, watching the Disney movie. And that means like they have control of, over children's perspective, perspective and education mm-hmm. in certain respects. And in terms of horror, I, I think of like horror mm-hmm. as these are the things that are manufactured by Disney in order to they're they're trying to make people be afraid of such and such a thing and obviously that is extremely problematic when you look at earlier films and these are the things we want you to be afraid of and when you realize what those things are yeah like you can see how the way certain villains are coded in certain ways like there's there's queer coding there's racial coding there's cultural coding xenophobia like abounds in a lot of these films and it just feels very relevant to me but also as well as that and this is just a very guilty pleasure thing they take a lot of tropes from horror movies in certain points. The one that I have in my head, this is a little um, behind the scenes kind of thing for our listeners, but the literally the scene that made me think I want to do this podcast comes from Pinocchio. And it's the scene where Lampwick turns into a donkey and all you can see is oh his shadow. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really good. It's it's I was watching that and obviously there's I mean I have we're not going to go into that today but I remember in my head always thinking like that just reminds me of American Werewolf in London every time I watch it and (laughs) it's like I feel like there's a lot to talk about in all sorts of aspects here but um, just to get your general views on the relationship between Disney horror villains and the way certain things are portrayed like what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's to come back to what you were saying earlier about when you have a Disney film that has quite a positive or progressive message, the advantage of Disney being this huge media conglomerate that has the ability to distribute and promote its films worldwide is quite a positive one. You know, Mm. everybody is, you know, now seeing this Disney film, they're picking up these positive representations and attitudes. It's exactly the same when there's a negative representation or attitude portrayed. And... You see that, especially in the way that most people will now watch Peter Pan, which is they'll stream it on Disney Plus, that they've now added this <laughs> little title card before the movie to say that it contains negative representations of cultures or characters that people should maybe think twice about in our current uh, modern era. Mm-hmm. And you do see those negative attitudes. I mean, this is maybe a very obvious thing to say that manifests mostly in the villains, in the the particular villains that Disney films choose to, you know, the characteristics they give those villains. So as you say, there's there's queer coding, there's racial coding, uh, even just things like they make them ugly. So ugly people are yeah. bad. Yeah, that's... Uh, mm. you know, on, a, on a very basic level, it's like, but why are they ugly? And again, you can get into... Do they have certain facial characteristics that are common to particular ethnicities? Do you see where the trouble is there? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think it is interesting to see both the relationship between how horror films draw on that, but within how horror films draw from Disney. As you've just said, American Werewolf in London has a very similar transformation scene to that in Pinocchio. But also, does Disney draw from other horror movies or other anxieties in a particular culture at a particular time and how do how do those come across like they are i think they are speaking to each other it's like disney is influencing the culture but they're also drawing on 
the anxiety is a particular populations demographics cultures mm. eras in in choosing who they make out to be villainous and how they represent that villainy yeah if yeah that makes sense no yeah. it absolutely does. I might just be repeating everything you've just said no 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 but definitely yeah that relationship is there one final point as well is um because there is a enormous difference between like when they portray such a thing like like say a villain like you said with ugly features in a horror mm-hmm. movie versus a disney mm-hmm. movie like the mm-hmm. gap between those two is astronomical because the audience mm-hmm. who are going to watch those things you can assume they're going to be very very different now obviously i love both of those things yeah yeah but Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. context is so important and we're going to go Mm -hmm. into that like i mean the way certain things are framed in this movie well we're going to get into it and um, before we go any further i'm just going to give a very quick recap of the plot for anyone who might be Mm -hmm. unfamiliar or might have forgotten certain plot points of the peter pan film so here we go this is going going to take a few minutes we'll hopefully and we'll blast through this so um excuse me if i if i trip over some things anyway So Peter Pan, it focuses on the Darling family who live in London and Wendy Darling, the oldest of the Darling children, has been given the ultimatum that she has to grow up, shock and horror, um, by her father who is basically annoyed that her his children are too childish. <laughs> After this ultimatum has been given, Peter Pan essentially flies into the bedroom at night and essentially kidnaps all the children to bring them to Neverland under the promise that uh, children in Neverland never grow up. So all the children, uh, Wendy, uh, John and Michael are very excited about this. So he, Peter Pan teaches them how to fly using pixie dust, which is provided by his, uh, we'll say associate, uh, Tinkerbell. <laughs> so they fly out through the window into the night sky, second star to the right and straight on till morning into Neverland. Once they're there, they are shot. We are, oh, sorry. We are introduced to Captain Hook and his band of pirates. They shoot at the children up in the sky uh, Peter Pan distracts them and the kids are taken by Tinkerbell to see the Lost Boys. But she flies on ahead and tells the Lost Boys that Peter Pan has ordered them to shoot down the Wendy bird. Um, so taking this as his orders, they try to shoot Wendy down. But Peter Pan comes in and saves her at the last minute. After that, he banishes Tinkerbell for a week. And he and Wendy go to see the mermaids while John and Michael go with the Lost Boys to uh, hunt some Indians. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the Indians... There's no nice way to say it. There is. A, and, exactly and just to happens. take a little yeah. disclaimer here, much like the film, that I w- for one thing, I will be saying Indians because that's what they say in the film. Um, but also, yes, this is an uncomfortable topic, but we're going to talk about it. So um they the the indians capture the boy saying that you kidnapped tiger lily the chief's daughter and we want her back and if you don't bring her back we're going to burn you at the stake then we cut to peter and wendy who see the mermaids the mermaids are horrible to wendy try to drown her Mm -hmm. and that's when they see hook smee and tiger lily rowing past in a boat going to skull rock they follow them they learn about captain hook's plan which is basically trying to convince tiger lily to tell the pirates where peter pan lives so that he can kill them. But Peter Pan basically does a few impersonations to fool people. He sets Tiger Lily free. There's a bit of a sword fight or a kerfuffle. And they basically save the day. Bring Tiger Lily back to the Indians. They have basically a little bit of a party. 
and then they all go back to Peter Pan's little lair. While this is happening, Tinkerbell is captured by Smee. Hook persuades her uh, to tell him where Peter Pan's lair is. He sneaks over to Peter Pan's lair and he captures the boys, uh, John, Michael, all the lost boys and Wendy when they're on their way to go back home because Wendy has convinced the boys you can come and live with us. They bring them back to the pirate ship and uh, Captain Hook leaves a bomb in a present uh, claiming it's from Wendy. Before he can open it, Tinkerbell breaks out of her prison back in the pirate ship. She flies back and flies the bomb away from Peter Pan saving his life. She survives that encounter, but then both of them come to the pirate ship. They have a bit of a showdown with Hook, release the Lost Boys, and basically they're victorious. They win the day. And then they fly the pirate ship back to London to bring Wendy and the boys back to their beds. And it's kind of implied that it may have been a dream, it may not have been. But also the figure in the sky, uh, the father sees it and he has the final line of the film, which is, I feel like I've seen that ship once uh, many years ago or a long time ago when I was very young. And that's the end of the film. So (laughs) that's everything. Yeah, lots to talk about there. But um, Stacey, do you want to kick us off? What's... Two questions. First, uh-huh. I want to get your impression of the film. I know you said that it wasn't one of your favorites. If you can talk about it in terms of a pure enjoyment level, if that's possible for you, not even mm-hmm. thinking about it academically, how did you mm-hmm. react to it this time? And after that, if you just want to throw out one of at any point at all that you want to talk about. Yeah, sure. I mean, it is sometimes hard to separate, like, how much did I enjoy this with how how much issue did I take with some of the the perspectives or representations in it right um i will say i mentioned last night i was out with some friends last night and i mentioned that i was doing this podcast and i'd watched this film and the reaction in the room was quite positive to the film and it surprised me a little bit because i did not particularly enjoy this i will say i found it a bit of a drag it's is Mm. is it just me is i've always found this film to be very cold it's a very cold it film. It is cold. Yeah. And I think there's there's room to talk about that coldness as well in terms of the relationship between maybe the Darling family, like the, those relationships, uh, the central kind of pairing of, of Peter and Tinkerbell, Peter and Wendy, the pirates, how they relate to each other. There's maybe that one scene where Wendy sings a song about what a mother is and why mothers are important. And that's the only point in the film where you're like, oh, people have feelings. Yeah. And they don't, they're longing for something that they don't have. It's like, is the coldness because of the absence of this mother relationship? Or is it something else? This this film kind of depicts Neverland as this like wonderful fantasy land that, oh, so much fun and joy and enchantment to be had there. Like, I mean, this is kind of the scenario for quite a lot of Disney films, this enchanted mm-hmm. place. Yeah, There's sure. nothing, nothing, nothing really good happens in Neverland <laughs> at all. Like, you're right. Like, yeah, that's true. It's not like, like the, the Mer- Mary Poppins fantasy land. Or yeah. Do you know what I mean? It- Mm-hmm. Nothing nothing joyful happens there. Like the mermaids try to drown Wendy. The Indians capture mm-hmm. the Lost Boys. Skull Rock mm-hmm. is Skull Rock. So like, you know, mm-hmm. the pirates capture them. Like you said, the only moment that they have that there is any kind of warmth is that segment where she's singing about, oh, I wish I was back home. 
Um, you could mm-hmm. make the argument, um, and I think this is a very, very deliberate thing that Disney did, was the Follow the Leader song where they're going mm-hmm. through. It's kind of this little montage to kind of bamboozle people into thinking that Neverland is this wonderful place. But like it lasts for all mm-hmm. two minutes and then it's over mm-hmm. and then terrible things happen again. Yeah, I do wonder how deliberate it is to have Peter present Neverland as a wonderful place where you never grow old and you just have fun and adventures all the time. And then once the darling kids get there and see that's not really the case, like they have adventures, but most of them involve almost dying. Yeah, you, that's, that's a good You point. never grow up because you die. That's that's one way of never growing. It's like a, a monkey's paw. It's like, I wish I could go somewhere where I will never get old. And then the finger curls up and it's like, okay, you're going to go here. You might get set on fire by Indians. You might get drowned by mermaids. You might get attacked by pirates who are trying to shoot you out of the sky or make you walk the plank. Like, is that is that the trade-off there? Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing that you bring up because I don't know if you've ever read the book of Peter Pan, but what you've just mm-hmm. said is exactly what happens. Uh, what do you mean exactly? Can you Can you explain that a little bit more? When they say, oh, uh, people don't grow old here, there is a line in the book that says the Lost Boys, like Peter, never grow up. And whenever they show signs of growing up, he thins them out. He thins them out. Exactly. Yes. What do you think that that is? (laughs) Oh, and it gets worse. There's not just that. I mean, I very slight Mm -hmm. tangent just into the book Mm -hmm. itself. So obviously, yeah, there's a very strong illusion that, you know, Peter Pan literally kills anybody who looks like they're starting to grow up. But there's other segments of that book that definitely allude to Peter Pan being a little bit of a psychopath. Do you sure. remember... That's even in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely yeah. there. But do you know the mm-hmm. their little lair kind of place? You know how they all jump out of tree trunks and branches and stuff like that in order to get into their yeah. little uh, base thing? So... The hanging tree, yeah. Yeah, they dwell on that a little Mm -hmm. bit. And we'll talk about the hanging tree as well, actually. Mm -hmm. The way this is done is Peter Pan adjusts their bodies so that they can fit into these branches. That is a line (laughs) from the book. He adjusts their bodies. And again, it's a little ambiguous, but immediately, I don't know about you, my mind goes to actual disfigurement. So Sure. Yeah, Yeah, I can see where you got I can see where you're coming from there. Just their bodies. I mean, I'm also thinking of like Mr. Fantastic. They just become like very <laughs> elastic and rubbery, and they're able to like contort themselves. And I mean, it's possible. I mean, but... if they're if they're ghosts, they don't need to be disfigured. They can just pass right through the tree. And there you have brushed upon, if not hit the nail on the head, right yeah. there, because. This is the big point that I want to bring up, and it's not something that I really picked up on before, but this movie is obsessed with death. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know there are hints of that in the original play as well, that, you know... But I would go so far as to say, like, the film itself is almost... Like, I mean, they make it more vague, yes. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot lot more hints towards it, like, a lot more Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. in the book itself. I mean, first of all, the most obvious... Well, not the most obvious, but the most uh, prevalent theme that we always see is clocks. The passing of time. Yes, the passage of time. Yeah. And it's just everywhere. I mean, it's one Aging of the most. And I- death. Yeah. yeah, it's like one of the most iconic things, obviously, is when they land on the Big Bang clock at the very start. 
And what I found really interesting, and I didn't think about this before, is um, the fact that they land on the clock. And I always think that, I wonder if, like, they've broken the clock when they do that. Like, you know, when he lands on it and he pushes it down. Like, has he yeah. has he literally just, like, paused time there? Like, has he, like, frozen it there? And it's like, oh. Because I'd, I'd never really picked up on that mm. before. But I was like, oh, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's constant, these clocks. I mean, you have, again, the really obvious one, the crocodile. Which is ticking. Yeah. yeah, which literally signifies like impeding death for Captain Hook, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's it's right there. But you also have um, the present the for uh, Peter, which is a bomb again, and that's something they changed from the book because that was initially mm-hmm. he just poisoned like the medicine that Peter was going to uh, drink. So this time it's an actual bomb. Okay. There's a clock and in the ticking. bomb. And not yeah. only that, but Hook is holding a clock to show like, oh, look, you know, it's it's ticking down. It's going to be done. Mm-hmm. And he does a literal mm-hmm. countdown towards death yeah. for Peter Pan. It's yeah. it, it, it really yeah. blew me away. That. It is everywhere. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of how many countdowns there are in this movie, like how aware this film is of the passage of time, like in terms of both seeing the literal countdowns, hearing the the ticking crocodile, but then you also have at the very beginning, the darling family being told, oh, tomorrow, Wendy, you're going to grow up. It's like Mm. you are... Your time is running out. Like this is the last. Your deadline's you coming to be up. Be a yeah. child. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually, just one thing. Can I just point yeah. out how absolutely hilarious this? The fact that Wendy is being told you're getting your own bedroom, and this is being like portrayed as a negative thing. <laughs> this, this, if anything, terrible. shows the cultural yeah. differences between kids from the fifties and kids <laughs> nowadays. That's the biggest thing because I cannot think of a single yeah. young girl who would not be like, "I'm getting my own room." Hell yes! Gosh, yeah, especially because of the way that she is a little mother to these two boys. Yeah, and we'll definitely come back to this as well. But she has literally been forced into this space of having to put them to bed and tell them stories you know things mm. that a actual mother should probably be doing and she uh, in, in her role as their sister has taken over and yeah it's, it's very odd that her reaction is i don't want to grow up i want to continue sleeping in the nursery with these two <laughs> very rambunctious little boys <laughs> to put it nicely and, yeah. and soothe them <laughs> yeah i mean they're very lively they're very giddy you know we see them playing peter pan at the beginning I'm like i can't think of any 12 year old girl who wouldn't be like yeah, yeah. i don't want to sleep in here anymore and actually, that's a funny thing, just to bring up, like, Wendy's age, because I'm, I remember when I was a kid, I sure. thought she was much older. And again, this is just coming down to the way she's depicted, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. based on the fact that if you look at Wendy's mother, like, their facial structure, everything about them is almost identical. Like, she is a You're mini right. version of her mother, the way she's depicted. Yeah, even there's a few frames where it looks like she has a little adult head on a child body. And I don't know how <laughs> deliberate that is or if that's just like slightly lazy animation. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I think it works quite well as a visual metaphor in this film that like Wendy is an old head on little tiny shoulders. <laughs> I can't believe Peter Pan never like drew attention to that. <laughs> well, she's a big, ugly girl, Stephen. Okay. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I'd forgotten that bit, and I actually I quite enjoyed that. What did she say? She says you're a big, ugly girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
it's uh, a yeah. <laughs> it's it's what i find interesting about this so one thing that's present in this that's very different from the book is mm-hmm. the very cheeky very subtle not really there but kind of there sort of romance between wendy and peter sure and I wonder, is this to draw attention away from these semi-unsettling themes to kind of make it a bit more conventional and traditional? It's something that never sat well with me when I watched it, even as a kid. No, and I I almost take issue with your use of the term romance here. I think you're right, it implies that she has romantic feelings for Peter. Hmm. But to use some very modern parlance here, like Peter Pan is an absolute fuckboy in this movie. (laughs) The representation of Peter Pan. He's this he just flies in whenever it suits him. He's there to get his shadow because he left his shadow behind. Like it's a phone charger or something. He's like, oh, I gotta go back and get my. Sh-. There's even a bit where she's like, "Oh, he's gotta come back because I've got I've got something of his," which seems like a very modern. Like, oh no, he'll be back. He's gonna call me again. He yeah he he doesn't seem that keen on coming back, but he's gotta come back and get his shadow. Well, get on with it, girl. Can I just I I just. I'm, I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you finish but I just love that comparison it's not one that I had made but that is genius oh Stephen then we read this movie very differently because <laughs> for me you know we're gonna talk about the very conventional horror tropes in this and we already have with you know the very the presence of death the passage of time this awareness of aging as a ticking clock but like to me this had like a24 indie horror movie vibes of oh this girl is into this guy who was absolutely terrible to her he's like the boyfriend from midsummer i was about to bring Um, up midsummer as well because like yeah i can (laughs) definitely see that (laughs) like he just you are i mean the the way that i kind of get resolution from that and i feel like maybe you didn't but yeah you are 100 right like that's it's so there where it really comes across i think in my opinion is uh the mermaid section where he just so yes. obviously just fucks off, says, oh, look, more pretty girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, she's just there, yeah. whatever. And like, it's it's a, it's a one of those moments. And again, it didn't sit right with me when I was watching it as a kid. Like, why mm-hmm. is he treating her this way? It's yeah. one of those things that um, I feel like if you were to look up a BuzzFeed list of like, you know, oh, greatest romance in Disney movies ever. This would almost invariably make the list just because nobody really thought about it at all. You know? I don't know. I mean, the fact that they're kids as well, I don't know if it's fully there, especially because he is, you know, a frozen child. He will never grow Mm. up. He does not have the capacity to feel romantic feelings for Wendy in the way that she feels for him. Yeah, sorry, just just to clarify now, when I say like there's a romance, I'm not saying that's there. I'm not saying it's strong. I'm saying this is something that Disney tried to shoehorn in aspects of it as a way of distraction, but it's completely inappropriate. Is basically yeah, what I'm trying to really, say. It really is. Mm. I think there's small signifiers to suggest this, but that's all they are. They're just signifiers. Yeah. There's no there's no depth to this relationship whatsoever. Yeah. But the fact that those yeah. signifiers are there are kind of a way to distract the people from or like the audience from the other more unsettling themes that if that romance wasn't there, that's all they could really latch onto and that might come across as very disturbing. Sure. Yeah. No, I can, I can, I, I get where you're coming from with that. And I do think it is an attempt to inject, again, this film's quite cold in terms of building relationships between characters beyond, you know, Wendy cares about her little brothers. There's not a lot of warmth there. And maybe it was an attempt to build 
some more warmth in there. Mm. But it's just, I think a lot of women my age and maybe slightly younger would look at the character of Peter Pan and be like, oh yeah, I've met this guy. (laughs) uh, He doesn't want to grow up. He can't feel complex emotional feelings. Well, actually, let's let's (laughs) talk about Peter Pan, actually, because like you said, he's... He's a character I never liked as a kid, like ever. I find him deeply unlikable. Yeah. Honestly. Now, maybe again, the play, it's different. It, I don't know. But the, from this movie, I... From the book, it's very similar. It's, um, I, I, I sort of feel like he's not more likable, but he's more interesting because they acknowledge okay. his flaws. Whereas in this one, they're very much trying to portray him as a hero. When he is Mm -hmm. not a hero. I mean, if you take out his heroic actions at the end of the movie, he's just an asshole. Well, all right. But you gotta take orders. Like, what has he got going for him at all? (laughs) And again, the issue is that he is being presented as this wonderful, sprightly, youthful, energetic, like, cool guy. He's a cool guy. Peter's cool. He takes us to Neverland where we almost get killed. He flies around with us in the sky. And yeah, like, just as much as Disney can influence how we think about what is and isn't villainous it can influence to think about certain characters as heroes and certain qualities as good and particularly in the case of their peter pan i'm not sure that's so great for the culture yeah and the thing is i feel like i feel like there's a slight acknowledgement of that at the very beginning because the first Mm -hmm. time you see peter pan he looks downright sinister. He's spooky! Yeah, definitely. They, they pan up to the roof. Is mm, it Wendy yeah. is talking about how Peter Pan might be back? She's like, Mom, leave the window open because Peter Pan might come in through the window. <laughs> and this <laughs> yeah. is meant... I, again, it sort of acknowledges it in that mm. you, it then pans up. We see Peter Pan on the roof and he is sort of in shadow, right? He looks yeah. kind of... And it's not just that, but like... Like the his... music is like, they use this panpipe music to make it seem exciting. Hmm. But if you put like spooky music over it, you'd be like, oh no, who is he? Why is he back here? His express... Everything about his expression is like structured <laughs> to, to, to tell you this person is here like to do harm. Like he's got like yeah, he's darkness around his eyes, this incredibly sinister smile. Like you can only, you can't help but look at that and think he's up to no good. And when you get right down to it, he is up to no good because he essentially kidnaps these kids. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, if you just had the barest plot outline, which is this sort of ageless, timeless, like male character of an unknown age, kidnaps a small girl to be the mother to his boys. That's a horror movie. It is a horror movie. 100% <laughs> is. 850,000 people are reported missing every year. If you think it can't happen to you, you are dead wrong. Captivity. It's like the Twilight thing of like, oh, Edward Cullen, yeah, he looks 17, but he is 150 years old or whatever. It's like, Peter Pan, he's he's a boy who never grew up, but how long has he been a boy who's never grown up? Mm, yeah. Like, what, what, what does Peter Pan do in this movie that would, you could 
honestly point out and say that is a good characteristic that he has like i mean you can say that he saves the boys at the end but i think that's more of a byproduct of him just being a bit of a malicious bastard and wanting to get revenge on hook it kind of is more than he wants to get back at hook right he just has this vendetta against hook and again it might be worth thinking about like what of his traits are portrayed as as good is it just that he's kind of fun loving like the idea of like oh when you grow up you have responsibilities but if you go to neverland you will never have those responsibilities (laughs) is it that is that the appeal is uh just not having to grow up just getting to do whatever you want all the time is that what's meant to be appealing If that's the case, then it's an interesting trajectory the narrative takes because the whole point of the film seems to be that this thing you thought was wonderful isn't that wonderful. Because like in the end, Wendy's just actually, do you know what? Growing up isn't so bad. So, If the alternative is death, which is what this film is positing. (laughs) Yeah. As you say, it is it is quite dark in that regard and probably more so in the original source material that the children who never grow up is because they die. They do. I mean, it's because like allegedly he like thins them out. Like they do. There are the thing is in parts of the book they do have some good points. Like one thing they do mention in the book is uh, fairies having orgies. That's a literal thing that is mentioned in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just a passing like the Tinkerbells of the world. Yeah, there's a point where um, someone's asleep outside, and uh, I think they say two fa- drunken fairies like step over their face because they were just coming from a fairy orgy or something and like it's it's never dwelt upon any further than that but and like i think they're using like orgy in like the old english sense that it was just kind of like a well-to-do party but just the fact that it had the word orgy in there yeah a bash but um just the fact that it was in there is just it's quite shocking that is i mean the way the tinkerbell is represented i wonder if that's sort of a a holdover from the source material in that she's quite surprisingly sexualized in some parts of this film if not sexualized there's very much an awareness of her body which i found a little bit uncomfortable and that is very much put in there by disney because they do mention like they talk about her curves in the book so even though it's there they draw further attention to it in the film and again it's it's uncomfortable because i think more than anything, what they're doing there is drawing attention to the fact that she isn't just a magical creature. She's a woman. That's what they're really doing there. And as yeah, a result of that... Sense... Mm. Sorry, continue there. No, if you, I was just going to say, she definitely is more of a woman than Peter Pan is a, like an adult. Like, obviously, Peter Pan, boy who never grew up. But it's not the case that Tinkerbell is a, a child pixie. I think she is a, a woman pixie. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So yeah, and, as a result of that. And ahead. as a result of that, like, I think you can see where, like, they're honing in on the uh, the feminine, negative feminine qualities that were, like, depicted of that area. Oh, her, her jealousy, her hysteria, and, like, her deceptiveness, yes. and, like, pitching women against each other, and all these things. It's And it's funny mm-hmm. because a lot of those things that are depicted as very negative, parts of them I found quite, you know endearing i really like when she's being kind of a bitch <laughs> honestly like um you enjoyed that i did and i know and i know that that's my perspective but i i do enjoy mm. like she's not this like extremely helpful person you know that she's just kind of she's there for herself really and that's the aspect of her i like now obviously other parts of that come out in very negative ways mm. and they kind of dismiss I mean, look, that yeah i appreciate that she has autonomy 
Yes. And that she doesn't just do whatever Peter wants and doesn't just do what she's told. That is commendable. But yeah, in, in, in light of like her other actions in the film, there is a concern there that, that Disney is maybe presenting autonomous women as uh, trouble. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Women women that aren't just doing whatever you want all the time are, are going to do bad things. Mm. Like tell Captain Hook where you are. Like you mentioned earlier when you're summarizing the movie, like he persuades Tinkerbell to tell Peter tell him where Peter Pan is. And the way he does that is basically by saying, I want to kill Wendy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you can uh, would you help me out so I can do that? And she's like, Oh, well if it's about killing Wendy not I guess it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I'll help you out with that. That's not a problem. I do find it very interesting that despite the fact that she embodies all these allegedly negative qualities, well, well I mean, yeah, negative qualities, I guess, she's still depicted in a very positive light. Like, not in the movie per se, but the way Disney as a whole has kind of put Tinkerbell on a pedestal. Like, she's kind of an icon for, like, uh, Disney itself. And, and like you said, she got her whole spin-off series. But despite that, personality completely changed. So mm. I find that very interesting. The look of her is very important, but her character, mm-hmm. who she is, has been all but eradicated. Like they're embarrassed about it, mm-hmm. which is interesting, mm-hmm. I think. Um, because yeah. her personality is one that has flaws and they definitely hone in on those flaws but i find it unfortunate that that it has completely obliterated them by the time these new movies come out yeah it's almost like her iconography is something they want to use without acknowledging the characterization that they gave her in that movie like i'm even thinking of like the disney logo isn't it like tinkerbell some i think you're right yeah i think sometimes it is all right yeah yeah so that's how much of a kind of legacy tinkerbell has as a sort of Mm. pixie character in this movie and as we've said she has a spin-off series where you know i'm not that familiar with it but it does sound like they change the way they characterize her as opposed to the original movie i wish we were still friends i miss you so much and they like the idea, again, of having a little little blonde pixie as one of their big Disney princesses. But yeah, it's interesting that that's ignoring how she's depicted in the original movie. Is the fact that she is like a pixie, a non-human character, like, I, I imagine that's like very relevant. Because like, she is a woman per se. And they again, mm-hmm. they emphasize that with the curves and all like, and how, oh no, I'm getting a little fat, which... Again, absolutely hilarious scene in hindsight. <laughs> shocking. I, I love that fact that she lifts up her things like, oh my God, this yeah. is, it's almost like it's bigger than my head, therefore enormous. Yeah. Like. yeah, so basically she stands on a mirror and mm. from doing that, she notices how big her hips look. So you see Tinkerbell put her hands on her hips and then move her hands out in front of her and be like really appalled. I was like, what an odd thing. There's a literal violin playing when like that she does that. Like literally it's like, oh, this is a sad scene. Oh no, she's getting big. It's like, why? It's I know it's there to like again emphasize her womanliness, but it's just such a dumb scene. But (laughs) why do we need to emphasize her womanliness in a in a movie for kids where she's a side character to Peter Pan? Like where she I suppose the other interesting thing about her is that she talks, but when she talks, it sounds like little bells ringing. So we as the audience Mm. 
have to have Tinkerbell interpreted for us by the other characters. That's true. And just in association with that as well, like kind of a side note as well, Tiger Lily, one of the other female characters, is a character Mm -hmm. who does not speak the entire way through the film. The one time we almost hear her speak is when she says the Mm -hmm. word help. But we don't actually like. Yes. She has like water. And then the like, water starts yeah, rushing. So, it's like, so yeah, we don't actually. Her. We can sort of hear her saying "help," and that's the only thing that she actually gets across. And everything else she does is she's a person to get rescued, and then she's a person who's kind of presenting herself, sort of like a reward mm-hmm. to Peter in a way. Mm, it's. I think you could make that argument. Like it's similar to Tinkerbell in that, like, this is a character, a female character who does not talk seems enamored by Peter for reasons that are unclear to me and then manifests that through her body. Like we get a lot of her body language. We see her moving, but we never hear her talking, mm. which is dark for me. It is. No, of... it is. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah. She does this little dance initially for Peter and then he starts to dance with her in a way that again is maybe a little culturally dubious now that, this, that she's doing this kind of sexy exoticized indian dance yeah um yeah i i want to put a pin in that because that's going to be a whole Mm -hmm. topic we're going to get into one small thing i want to get into before i want to jump into captain hook and his portrayal because i think he's actually possibly the most interesting characters in this but one thing i really want to talk about is the relevance of peter pan leaving his shadow behind Sure, yeah. Just shadows in general are kind of is another theme that are a motif that I kind of know has popped up quite a lot in this. I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's definitely a connection here between the notion of Neverland being a land of death and the idea of um, they're living this kind of non-life there that it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of frozen in time. Like it's it's things are happening but nothing happens, if that makes sense. Everything is just sure. repeated. And I wonder, is like the emphasis and fixation on shadows kind of a way of emphasizing that? You know, just kind of you're living a shadow of your actual life. But that's one interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I know we've talked about it before, like a motif of an absence of a shadow signals mm. sort of death of a kind yeah. in <laughs> that's yeah <laughs> totally yeah, if a character is not casting a shadow yeah if a character is not casting a shadow does that suggest they're kind of disembodied does that suggest they're dead and again in a movie that seems very much preoccupied with those ideas mm. like is losing his shadow a loss of a connection to the like real world or a a state of being alive (laughs) yeah it's especially i think it's especially interesting with peter pan because aside from the fact that they it's a plot point it like it is relevant Mm -hmm. to the plot but not just that but just the way he's animated like as a completely weightless being Mm -hmm. it's very easy to kind of make his shadow an almost secondary character because they move in similar ways you wouldn't Mm -hmm. you wouldn't really see wendy's shadow moving the way his shadow does because no she's a heavier person like i'm not i'm not making a dig at women here now when i say that but like just literally whereas he has weightlessness she is grounded well it's part of his characterization yeah Mm, that he is this little sprite yeah that he flies around and he's nimble and he's quick and you get some fun animation with the shadow doing different things to peter and Mm. i know that's also something that could come up in horror movies right yes shadow is not behaving as you are 
Well, yeah, exactly that. I mean, you have that whole thing in like uh, Dracula, obviously, like when his shadow like is misbehaving. But in particular, like in vampire movies, like one thing, a comparison I drew was, and I imagine you probably saw this as well, but when Hook mm. is climbing up behind Peter Pan in uh, uh, Skull Rock, like I just felt like, yes. oh, wow, German expressionalism, Nosferatu. Absolutely. I mean, any time you see a big shadow, like the go-to is like, oh, well, that's Nosferatu's influence right there. It's like, Nosferatu, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but it is it's this like looming threatening sort of harbinger of doom mm. right because you see the shadow before you see the person so it's it's very effective that way in terms of building tension yeah yeah and it's it's interesting because i feel like everyone's shadow except peter's is just kind of uh it's kind of a way of expressing like the true motivations and personality of that character so in particular obviously we have hook sure. and he has that mm -hmm. moment Another moment that jumped out at me, weirdly enough, actually, is uh, the mother's shadow. There's a bit where she's talking to oh. Wendy and um, all, it's like you can see her silhouette talking to Wendy. If that, So like mm -hmm. Wendy is sitting on her bed and she's like looking at her mother, but the way it's angled... But we see her shadow. We see her shadow talking to that. And I don't, I don't know. I think like she's putting the other kids to bed and I think it's just the ever-looming shadow of motherhood leaning over Wendy. Mm -hmm. Is that what they're trying to get across mm -hmm. or something like that? Maybe, I don't I know. I think you can read it that way. Mm. Yeah, that it is like this looming threat. Again, if you can compare it to the shot of Hook sneaking up on Peter, it's this motherhood sneaking up on Wendy. Yeah, but the interesting thing about that, that particular scene is it's not threatening. The mother obviously is... No. They go, they go to great lengths to make the mother this really soothing figure. This, uh, like, they have a whole song about her. Like, they, she's she's the thing that they, in the end, go back home for. Like, it's forget the father; sure. he's he's nobody. But like, the mm -hmm. mother is what they come back for, and they portray yeah. it in such a way so that even though she is looming over Wendy, and this is this is your mm -hmm. future, they do it in such a way as if to suggest that like this is a comforting thing. This is a good thing. Oh, you think? I think so. Because it, it is weird to think of shadows as comforting. But again, everything mm -hmm. about the lighting and that, like there's soft pinks, soft pastels, mm -hmm. warm lighting. Like it's a one-on-one -on -one harmless conversation between a daughter and a mother. And just the fact that it's a shadow, it just, it struck me as odd. But I wonder if it was just maybe one very savvy animator suggesting, hey, what if we did this? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, what if it's like, okay, if... We, the audience, are not me meant to read it as threatening. I don't know. Maybe it's just my own personality and aversions. I'm like, ooh, motherhood as a threat. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of people, very excited about becoming mothers. Wendy, very keen to be a mother. And this happens before Peter comes and takes her away to be a mother figure. And it's still something that she sees as a positive thing. You know, we've mm. already talked about how she doesn't want to move out of the nursery because she seemingly really likes yeah. being a mother. So maybe maybe threat is the wrong word then. It's like the threat of motherhood or like the promise of motherhood, the encroachment yeah. of motherhood as like a role that she will fulfill. But mother, I don't want to grow up. But not soon, not too soon. Maybe, maybe it's just like it's suggesting that she's not ready for it because like the mother's shadow doesn't appear in the final mm -hmm. scene. It is something I checked like back no. afterwards. But okay. like you said, the fact that she engages with this idea and she likes this idea like it's really weird when she goes to neverland and they said hey i brought a mother to come look after you and like there's no hint of like whoa whoa you never said that it's like literally like yep 
That's me. I'm the yeah, mother. Yeah, she's excited about it. Yeah. And this was, I think, when I lost my train of thought earlier when I was talking about the way Disney portrays villains. It draws mm. on anxieties from in the culture. It's also interesting when it does that with characters who are not villains. Yes. Yeah. Right. So the mm. idea that like a girl should be quite excited about being a mother someday, maybe not this young. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's the end of the movie. Not today, but in the future. This is something that's not threatening. So this is something that's suggested in the book that Neverland, like, mm-hmm. and also very strongly in the film that Neverland, it's it's quite ambiguous as to whether it's a real place. Very much so in this film because. The final scene suggests that this all took place in a single night and maybe it was all a dream. That doesn't happen in the book. But um, okay. they do stress that Neverland is just make-believe. Like, literally, it's the idea mm-hmm. of make-believe. And mm-hmm. it's what goes on in a child's brain. So if that's mm-hmm. the case, then the idea of Wendy going to Neverland to be a mother is basically her playing at being a mother. Like, literally playing at being a mother. And for that reason, she's comfortable with that because it's not actual motherhood. It's just her playing. Yes. And, like, they're pushing that idea on the audience that, like, it's totally okay for, like, girls to play at mother because this is going to prepare you for your future. Remember that big yeah. shadow hanging over you? That's your future. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely, yeah. And I think, as we say, there is enough ambiguity mm. in the ending that this could be read as a dream. You know, we see the games that the boys are playing at the beginning. So it makes sense, you know, if they're playing at being cowboys and Indians, that's what they see in Neverland. Mm. Wendy is already reading them stories and acting like their mother. It makes sense that she's imagining all these other boys. And even the way the lost boys are dressed, are mm. do they resemble the stuffed animals they have in their bedroom? <laughs> is that maybe they're putting personalities and turning them into little boys as opposed to like teddy bears and rabbits and everything else we see there i hadn't thought about that but yeah because again this is something that i assumed when i read the book before it's like oh they were dressed in animal skins and this is just like disney's way of saying okay well we're not going to do animal skins but like this works but yeah no you're right because it does even just the idea because they're in onesies yeah they're they're basically in their like it's basically a big slumber party this entire segment like so Mm -hmm. it's just yeah no no i feel like that's absolutely there yeah one way, if you're reading it as a dream, it's like, oh, there's their teddy bears are now in their dream, their little boys who they are also playing with, which is quite cute, actually. Yeah. Still a little unsettling, though, when you yeah. get the entire, <laughs> the intent, what, what we feel the intent is there. Like, when you take that into account, it's quite odd, um, quite unsettling, mm-hmm. really. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I want to talk about Captain Hook now. So sure. yeah, we haven't gotten to him yet. In, now, in hindsight of like what we've talked about so far, I feel like he's not going to be as interesting as I originally thought. But one thing I <laughs> noted was he's the warmest character in this entire film. You think? I, I think that like he I relate to him more than I think anybody else in this entire movie. <laughs> because, again, Peter Pan and like complete douchebag, like the kids, they have these really unreal expectations of netherland and everything what they they want to do just seems like nonsense and i kind of like sympathize for captain hook who just had this little wanker cut his hand off and he just wants obviously he goes very far saying i want to kill him sure i I do feel like it's quite normal to be like hey don't do that i want to have a word with you about what you did can you like not do that maybe (laughs) obviously this is taken to huge extremes but also not just that but also the relationship he has with Smee 
feels like the most normalized yeah. relationship in the entire film. I'm not saying something considering mm-hmm. how weird all the relationships in this film oh, are. Shooting a man in the middle of his cadenza? <laughs> it ain't good form, you know. Good form, Mr. Smee. Good form. Did Pan show good form when he did this to me? I happen. <laughs> Cutting your hand off was only a childish prank, you might say. But um, yeah. I'm interested to get your take. Like, what what do you think about it? What do I think about sort of Captain Hook as a villain? Yeah, yeah. Or his relationship with Smee, his relationship to the crocodile. Like, I think it is interesting that he himself seems quite childish. Yes, and I think there's a parallel to be made between him and the father there. Absolutely with the father, yeah. In that there is this outward disdain for immaturity, Mm. kids being kids. Like, he's just annoyed that the kids are behaving like kids, which is a very silly thing to, to be, because boys will be boys lost boys will be lost boys isn't that like an interesting like now i'm not saying a good motivation or anything but it's an interesting motivation Mm. to set up this animosity between two characters like it's literally when you boil it right down it's a grown-up just fed up with some kid acting like a dick basically and acting childish well definitely both of them take it too far like the the Mm. The root problem is the adults are annoyed that the kids are behaving like kids. But then you do see, you know, Peter is is taking it a little bit too far. Mm. There's a suggestion that he was responsible for Hook being attacked by this crocodile, who I think is a great villain himself. Yes, he really is. We'll talk about the crocodile in a minute. But it is interesting to me, like, his his fear of that crocodile manifests so so childishly. Like, it's so mm. exaggerated and it's so immature. And he's like, oh, we got to get away from him. But in fairness, the crocodile is directly targeting him. Yeah, yeah. Which to me is like a great trope in any kind of movie, any kind of monster movie. I think it, it's 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 very much uh, you know, the kind of thing where it's not just that the monster is exists and is doing destructive things and is scary and horrible, you know, like a Godzilla kind mm. of thing. This this crocodile specifically hates this one guy. <laughs> Yeah, you could easily make It Follows just using a crocodile, like, and, like, it would just be basically a Peter Pan <laughs> from the perspective yeah. of Yeah, <laughs> in a way, yeah, he's like, oh, no, it's that crocodile. The crocodile hates me specifically. Like, the crocodile will probably eat other characters, would possibly attack other characters if they fell into the water, but he seems like he's really not that interested. He's not that much of a threat to any character other than Hook. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he has opportunity to go after others, and he doesn't. He just really wants this one guy, which is yeah. a trip I really enjoy. And I do find it interesting that despite the way so many characters in this are animated, this is where the really cartoonish side of Disney really comes out. For Hook, absolutely. He basically looks like Goofy whenever he interacts with uh, the crocodile. <laughs> like, the bit, the whole bit in Skull Rock. Yeah. And this is really interesting because I remember when I watched this movie as a child, Skull Rock being this really dark part of, like, the film. And for, for, a, for a little bit, it is. But it ends in such a, like, ridiculous, over-the-top, shrieking characters, exaggerated movements. Everything is just absolutely ridiculous in that moment so like they really deflate any sense of tension that is in that moment like that so mm-hmm. yeah i mean i also i also think it's fun like the crocodile is not really an ad he's an adversary to hook he's not particularly aligned with peter like peter and this crocodile don't really work together in a, in a no. kind of meaningful way 
you do you do kind of get the sense of that though because the bit where at the very end where they're <laughs> hook e- meets his ultimate de- demise by being called a co- calling himself a codfish and you can <laughs> see like they're all singing along and like the crocodiles in the water splashing along and you do kind of get a sense that there is an alignment of sorts there Mm. but just in terms of actually bringing about his his uh his demise i feel like there's no direct plan of action agreed with uh with peter and the crocodile which is funny yeah i did i did laugh at the codfish thing just the stakes are so low there's everything in this feels so low, which is amazing considering. Well, for Hook, if, if it w- yeah. Well, yeah, but like considering in if this was like not a different story, but like if Neverland wasn't make believe, like it would feel like the stakes were a lot higher. But it's just like you can't help but feel this is just all kids playing being kids the entire yeah. way through, and everything kind of stresses that. The only time that I feel. Okay, this is a slight tangent, but might as well go into it now. The only time I feel like the stakes have gotten a little bit high is the aftermath of the bomb. Okay. Peter and Tinkerbell are kind of like underneath the thing and there's like, you know, there's stuff everywhere. Like if if I was to give a parallel, it kind of reminded me of, um, do you know those movies you see about like the 9-11 attacks? And like, you know, people trapped under the rubble and kind of like, oh, okay, that's... That's kind of, and it's it's like the only kind of dark moment for Peter Pan in the entire movie. I mean, I know we already established he's a bit of a fuckboy and we don't care about him, but it's the only mm. time where we feel like his arrogance has been punctured in any way that he's like, oh shit. Sure, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, I meant the stakes are kind of low for Hook. Like I said, there's still all of these allusions mm. to death and all of these threats, I feel like, in place for the kids in a way. Uh, like nothing mm. ever really comes of them. And, and Peter always saves them. But like, Hook was going to make Wendy walk the plank. She walks the plank. He was going to kill her. It's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for, for Hook, it's like, what happens when the kids catch him? It's like, oh, they make him call himself a codfish. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if this is like, and I'm going to bring this to the thing with the Indians as well. You know how they say mm-hmm. that um, they play with the, like when, oh, when we capture the Indians, like we turn them loose. And when they capture us, we, they turn us loose. Oh, sure. Yeah. Is it kind of similar with the pirates, maybe? But, like, we're just not told that? Because that's kind of a vibe that I got from it. Obviously, yes, we do have to have some sense of stakes to make this a watchable movie. But mm-hmm. maybe the whole idea is... The, the way I view it is Hook is playing along with this because he has to play along. Because if he doesn't play along, he's going to grow up and then, you know, death is going to take him, basically, you know? So he instead, he just has to keep playing along. He has to keep basically acting like a child but there's like frustration there in doing that but then maybe. there's always that reminder that he's not a child and his time is running out yeah this yeah. crocodile follows him around literally ticking so and i wonder if that's like where like, the frustration comes from and where like this entire idea mm-hmm. of a character comes from because like he he's cartoonish and he wants to be like like part of him is very immature we get that constantly but he's also frustrated by this and like he he wants to be he just wants to be done with this. And this is kind of established in like his determination for just wanting to kill Peter Pan. Like <laughs> yeah. whether, which, which he does essentially like tries to do, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's an, in, it's an interesting dichotomy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're this adult villain ostensibly in a mm. world of boys who can never grow up, but you yourself are also quite emotionally immature <laughs> and you have to, again, keep participating in this 
timeless loop of pursuing this little boy. And there's lots lots of things just about him, like even in his his appearance, it's a strange dichotomy. Like the fact that he's got like a hook for a hand is kind of like a we've gotten so used to it that I think it's just kind of like whatever. We don't even think about it anymore. But the actual idea of that is like quite sinister that's another piece of iconography that we've seen in the likes of i know what you did last summer and and like Candyman, etc um obviously they like very much nerf it so it doesn't seem that sinister but like it is there it is like a sharp Mm -hmm. hook that is used as a weapon but then you also have he's he's very foppish you know he's got like his roof he's got like his pink shirt he's got stockings and all that so there's this very odd dichotomy of someone like who could very much like he has that intro moment where he shoots a guy while he's singing in the crow's nest mm-hmm. which kind of vicious but very much played for laughs here played for laughs yeah i was going to say it's he's not as threatening an adult as they maybe could have put in this movie like for an no. adult adversary of peter pan's yeah he's he's a little bit of feet he's disabled mm. if we want to call it that he's missing one of his hands um he's quite like his physique as well is it's like he's got this long hair and he's quite slender mm. and yeah very slender actually could make yeah. the argument for like queer coding him or even just making him a bit effeminate as opposed to making him a very burly very threatening kind of pirate captain mm. he definitely is he this is the adult adversary in the movie but almost everything he does is played for laughs like he actually is not that threatening at all hmm yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And just when you're saying, when you describe it that way, like the adult uh, villain versus like a child, weirdly, the thing that comes to my mind is um, Harry Potter and Voldemort. I don't know why. Like, that's something that, and it's interesting because in that film, you do get a sense of like, you, you sense the adultness versus yes. a child, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. you, you get that sense. In here, I do think what you're saying, I do think it is very much deliberate because, mm-hmm. as we've said before, there's a relationship here, a dichotomy between Hook and the father. And a mm-hmm. very a massive difference that they've made is just the stature of the two characters. Yes. Yeah, Their facial structures and the voice actor is the same. So obviously yes, they knew what they were doing. Fun detail. Yeah. But the father is this huge imposing figure. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hook, when we get right down to it, is not so no yeah <laughs> but it is interesting that they both have the the black hair kind of a little pointy nose mm. the mustache except the father is quite a full mustache again he's much more adult and much more like, yeah. <laughs> manly he's got a big but... thick mustache and hook as the little pencil thing <laughs> still quite childish though i would argue because like the father his... yes mm. yeah like the way he reacts to his kids at the start is kind of he's like a teenager he's like exasperated Mm. by the way his kids are acting but like he doesn't treat it like a responsible adult was saying like oh kids Mm -hmm. will be kids do whatever like why are you act this way like why aren't you like being a grown-up he's he's like acting this way to michael who's like what three years old maybe two three years old like a baby yeah what the hell (laughs) the the one thing i was going to say like the thing that really sets him off is Mm. the fact that his kids are like really worried about Nana when she crashes into the wall instead of him. That's the thing that sets everything off at the end. Yeah. And that in itself is hugely immature. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Like that he's 
you keep seeing that there's this whole like farcical sequence with Nana as well, where she's trying to avert disaster, and then he ends up mm, yeah. kind of crashing into something and knocking her over, and then the kids are worried about the dog and not him, even though they mm, both yeah. barreling into the wall. No! Um, the, yeah, so it is interesting that they're concerned about this dog over him, which I feel like is very real. <laughs> I feel like if you, if your dad fell over the dog, you would be like, oh no, how's the dog? Yeah. Your dad is lying there on the ground with a slip disc and you're like, oh no, is the dog okay? <laughs> Actually, this, this brings up a point that um, I read this, I don't agree with it, but I'd like to get your take on it because maybe I just missed something completely. So we've... We've already drawn attention to the fact that the father and Hook have a parallel, but I've yeah. seen people like online saying like also Nana and the crocodile have a parallel as well. I didn't spot that parallel. I didn't really get it, but um Well, I, I was maybe... going to yeah, I was gonna ask you when I when I interrupted there a minute ago, like if we extend the sort of thought experiment of everything that happens in Neverland is a dream, a sort of mm. shared dream by the darling children, if Hook is the stand in for the father what does it mean that that's how they characterize him in their dreams as someone who is so non-threatening and so physically <laughs> similar and yet very different from their father it's like they share some characteristics but not all they see him as non-threatening and immature um and is there is there another parallel to be made with with nana I don't know that I would say she represents the crocodile because she's not a threat to the father necessarily. No, and see, that's a, I mean... She's not out to get him. <laughs> no. Uh, I think... Well... I wonder if it, maybe if you uh, could see it from like the father's point of view, maybe he thinks, oh, Nana's out to get me, as in, like, oh, she's stealing popularity slash attention from, my ch like, from me, like, away from my children. I don't think this is there. Yeah, what I do think is there, though, because you brought this up, is um, oh no, sorry, I've just convinced myself. Now I was gonna say, <laughs> so I don't, I don't think this is true now, but I was gonna say like uh, Smee, you could say that there's kind of a coupley sort of thing going on there with Smee and like oh, oh totally, the dynamic is one hundred percent there because. Smee is kind of constantly trying to calm Hook down and saying like, oh, we should mm. do this. This is the smart and. Smee is the voice of reason for quite a lot of this. Like, yeah. he's just kind of saying we should just get on with things. Now, mm -hmm. the problem with this is it kind of contradicts the idea of Wendy playing mother. And she is very much the mother of Neverland, not just like the Lost Boys. It's kind yeah. of, you get the impression that like when she's being brought on board to the pirate ship, that she's going to be a mother to the pirates as well. Oh, totally. Like when she mm. sings the song, the pirates are approaching the the hangman's tree to to capture the boys and then they hear her singing the song about mothers and they get upset like they get emotional mm. they're like oh i wish we had a mother and that's that's exactly why they take her they're like she's going to be <laughs> our mother again it sort of reinforces how immature even the adult looking characters are in this in this movie 
And I wonder if um, Smee is maybe like a placeholder of sorts, but the fact that he is a man kind of is suggesting that like, oh, a man can't be a mother. He's completely inept because he has literally no control <laughs> at all over Hook because every like valid suggestion he tries to make, Hook is just kind of like, no, we'll go here. And that's just the end of it. Yeah, like Smee checks him a few times, like when he shoots that guy in the crow's nest. Smee's yeah, like, it's not yeah. really good. It's not good for him to just shoot somebody in a crow's nest, like when they're not looking mm. at yeah. And he's like, What do you mean? It doesn't matter. Like he was yeah. annoying me, or whatever it is he says. <laughs> I can't remember what justification he gives. He was just like, Ah, oh, I uh I did that because I'm Captain Hook and I do that. He says it's not good form. He's like, Good form and did Peter Pan show good form when he did this? To hell and with again, good form, yeah. A completely irrational and unreasonable reaction there. But um yeah, no, I felt like in that scene in particular and plenty of other ones i just feel like it it very much syncs up with uh all the times uh mrs darling is trying to like placate mr darling and he's just having none of it he the just entire isn't time. having any of it yeah so in that way yeah me, maybe smee does stand in for the adult non-mothering qualities of the mother and then wendy takes on the sort of nurturing soothing role yeah because I think that's the main thing she kind of focuses on when she sings her song about what a mom is. She's like, it's someone who like tucks you in and she reads you stories and she sings you goodnight and she loves you. Mm. But yeah, she doesn't really address like, oh, and yeah, and she talks your father down when he gets a bit wound up because he is himself mm. a big blundering idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, like like Hook, it's, it's, you know, another parallel they have is just they're absolutely everything they do is played for laughs like the way they move even though their physical stature is different it's just they're clumsy they're falling over they're getting eaten by crocodiles and they're bashing into walls they're falling over the dog you know it's it's all played for laughs yeah well there's one exception to that of sorts uh well two sort of and i just want to talk about because these are okay a few and this is this is something that like another thing that i bring up in every podcast and it's like just the way certain people are animated the people are look the way people are set up to look mm-hmm. villainous and um mm-hmm. there's two sections of that in so hook being the villain he has mm-hmm. two moments where he's kind of intimidating of sorts so the first mm-hmm. obvious one is at skull rock now mm-hmm. i've personally feel that this entire segment is a little bit vapid like i think the iconography is beautiful but well not beautiful but like it's 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 very iconic like imagery the idea of like a skull in the thing but Mm -hmm. i think it's a child's version of upping the stakes if that makes sense i mean are you talking about when he's climbing the rock that scene we talked about earlier where we see his shadow because even then it's like the idea of hook is worse than hook (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the shadow that's, is that's a really good hook. point yeah I, i'm talking about this entire section up until the point basically when up until the point it gets cartoonish you know when like hook mm-hmm. starts sees the crocodile or when he's fighting peter pan there's doing all the like you know visual comedy when like he pulls the hat over his head stuff like that oh, but up until okay. that point there's these semi uh ominous moments like when you mm-hmm. see first see hook coming across the water Yep, it's Hook on. Hook! 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 Hook!
they set it up really well and again it's vapid because when you know Hook you realise like he's just not really a threat but when mm. he's coming in all the mermaids go Hook Hook oh no Hook and you can yeah. see like the mist is travelling along with Hook and like the screen gets darker when he approaches so this is a moment where Hook actually is coming across as kind of scary mm-hmm. but it's immediately punctured the second like Peter Pan walks in and just like, says nope not a threat fine yeah but um, yeah. I think it's the same kind of thing that I just mentioned where it's like we see him and initially there's something a little bit scary and it's only once he mm. begins actually engaging with his environment that we realise oh this guy's not a threat yeah 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 the introduction of him where you're like oh no yeah and yeah then, and the moment he acts yeah when Peter Pan impersonates him, you could say that's almost a literal echo of that, like because he's just yeah, yeah, yeah. literally impersonating Hook. And it's it's one of those moments that I remember as a kid, I always was not scared of, but it unsettled me a little bit. But you know where Peter Pan screams into his hat and says, understand, and like rocks fall yeah, yeah, from yeah. the ceiling. It's one of those moments yeah. I thought like, ooh, that's a little unnerving, but it's literally mm-hmm. just someone screaming. And it's, I thought like it's kind of... <laughs> your parents screaming at you when you're a kid is like one of the scariest things in the world to happen. So I wonder, is that part of it as well? (laughs) For the last time, Mr. Smee, take the princess back to her people. Yeah, I, I I can agree with that. Yeah, I think that, again, that's Peter doing an impression of Hook. It's Hook's impression that's scary. Hook himself is not a threat, but like this idea of him that he's kind of building it's like peter's Mm. idea of hook and i suppose by that measure it's also the darling children's idea of hook yeah it's like he's he's big and he's booming he's screaming and that's scary but like actually hook himself is not exactly until the last moment and this is another moment where the music and like uh, the animation plays a big part in this but the moment where peter says like i won't fly and like we'll fight You mean you won't fly? No, don't be drink the trick! I give my word, Hook. Good! Then let's have at it! And uh, there's a couple of moments here. There's a bit where Hook is climbing the mast, and the way the camera frames him, it's like really dark. He looks really disheveled, and like he's this li- like he's mm-hmm. approaching the camera really quickly. And it's it's one of the few moments where he looks genuinely threatening. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting, and like. The sword fight itself is like quite uh, kinetic. Like the movements are sure. very fast. It's very mm-hmm. different from the other one where they do very not slow movements, but they give you time to appreciate the comedy of what's happening. Whereas in this one, it feels like a little bit overwhelming. There's one cut in particular, and I know I'm focusing a lot on the animation, but I think it's relevant. There's one cut in particular where Hook is like he swings his sword like four times in quick succession in about the space of about a second and a half it's a little overwhelming to see and i think that's relevant because this is the point where peter pan has grounded himself right so it's kind of a way of saying like now we have stakes now it's a very again sort of vapid but less so than skull rock i think sure yeah and i suppose that makes sense in terms of where that fight happens like when that sword fight happens that it is this climactic moment where we're kind of approaching the end of the story, it's like something bad could happen here. Yeah. So it makes sense that they would give that a bit more. It is interesting that you say they're anti- animated completely differently to give it those stakes. Yeah. But I feel the fact that like the reason this happens is because like Peter, or, I was about to say Peter Hook, Jesus, uh, <laughs> Ca- Captain Hook kind 
basically he has another moment of absolute exasperation and he just says like and and he kind of reasons with peter in a very childish way he's saying well you're chicken bok 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 you won't even fight me normally and but at the same time he's also saying like when are you just gonna grow up and like face me like you know face this like and face like you know an actual challenge instead of just like flying away willy-nilly and having fun and it's kind of like his challenge towards him to grow up yes and for that reason i think there's an element of like tension and intensity at that Mm -hmm. point yeah totally and it's again because it's referring to one of the central kind of tensions and themes of the movie is like actually hook putting out this idea of like you need to grow up bringing it back to the father telling us telling the darling children in the beginning you need to grow up so it is just coming mm. back around to that idea and and it's it's kind of interesting that peter like he does grow like he doesn't cheat he doesn't fly he kind of takes on that challenge and he's successful yeah and he also you know they tell him no it's okay just just fly away like you're not gonna win mm. on on hook's adult terms you know if we want to call yeah. that but no, he stands by and he's like, no, I am. I'm going to fight him on these terms. I'm going to, I'm going to win. What do you think of the fact the way he wins that fight is by wrapping like the Jolly Roger around him and tying him up with that? <laughs> like a literal skull. <laughs> yeah, I was like, once again, like an icon of death. <laughs> the pirate yeah. flag. And I, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, again, there's like some nice animation you can do there, like wrapping up in a flag. But the fact that it is the Jolly Roger, not like... Hook's big coat that he wears or something is, I think, significant. All right. Yeah, definitely. Banishes him with death. Okay, uh, we need to address something now. So something mm-hmm. we've been dancing around the entire time. And do you know what? It's funny, I think, because I think we could almost leave this podcast here if we wanted to because of how little really this affects the plot. But we yeah. have to talk about the Indians, the Native Americans in this. Yeah. Yeah, what we would now term Native Americans, yeah, yeah, that are named as Indians in this movie, yeah. Again, I I feel like there's a functional plot to them being in this film with Tiger mm-hmm. Lily, mm-hmm. but thematically, I feel like they just don't belong here at all. No, and it's yeah, you know, we've talked about how we do have these parallels in the plot between the real world and Neverland, hmm. uh, in terms of aging the approach of time the passage of time having to grow up having to mature having to face all of these things but what happens with with the indians and with tiger lily just really seems to have nothing to do with those ideas whatsoever they're kind of a red herring of you think they're going to be the antagonists and then actually it is indeed captain hook that we need to be worried about as in they think the boys have kidnapped tiger lily and that's why the indians capture the kids they think they have done something to slight them and then we find out actually captain hook has kidnapped tiger lily so yeah there's it it is just functional it just seems like an extra complication to avoid to, to kind of prolong the confrontation between captain hook and the kids and i suppose to show captain hook doing something that's actually quite villainous yeah yeah so it's another another way to make him seem threatening when he really is is not yeah i mean you could make the argument that the mermaids like fulfill a similar function but i feel like they're more uh 
they're more in sync with the general iconography of Neverland. Whereas mm-hmm. I always felt that when you, when you look at the map of Neverland from the start, I always felt like the Indians TP, which just signifies like, you know, all Indians there just kind of just mm-hmm. seemed a little out of place. Like, it's like, why is it there? It does. And I guess they're in the original story. Right, yeah. the original Peter Pan, they do also play it being Indian, so you have this Indian storyline, but it does feel like really out of place. Really it kind is, of yeah. pointless. And I mean, what do you think about the fact that they did include this? Do you think it was to add this extra sort of level of plot complication? Well, as I said, it, it like you said, it is in the book. So I mean yeah. they it's very closely modeled off uh, the book itself. The only thing they took out was when the boys are being kidnapped the indians are like standing guard at the tree but like they have a bat the pirates and the indians have a battle before they kidnap them. that's one thing that's like excluded from that but other than that it's all it's all quite closely modeled after that and i i don't know i just feel like i mean i feel like it's very overly simplistic but i just feel like they didn't see anything wrong with this like yeah this just adds a little extra romp in here why not it's just but even just in terms of the way they talk and this like musical sequence, which I found quite galling, actually. Oh, God. Uh, there's this one song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just the song is like, why is the mm. red man red or whatever? And yeah. it's like, oh, a woman kissed him and he blushed. And I'm like, okay, on so many levels, this is quite appalling. Oh, the, yeah. I mean, and there's also the why, why does he ask you how? And it's like, oh, yeah, because he's always, you know, trying to learn from the white man. And it's like... He doesn't know anything. The white man has oh, to God. tell him how. Yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like it at all. And that's also the sequence that I mentioned earlier where Tiger Lily does this dance that it's quite prominently features her dancing at first for Peter and then kind of with Peter. Mm. And it's, yeah, it just seems like it's kind of exoticizing her in a way that's gross, even when you, without considering that she's a child. (laughs) Yeah. Level of discomfort to it. Like I said, we should bring this up because I think it's impossible to talk about this film without bringing it up because it's at this yeah. point what it's probably the most famous for because it's because of this content warning that Disney Plus puts in front of the movie. It's extremely now. racist. <laughs> it's really ra- just they're all drawn kind of the same. There, there are no personalities given to the Indians. Yeah, like it's it's very yeah sketched out and sketchy. Yeah. The only kind of parallel I can find, and it's the tiniest thing, between the main themes of this film and like this is, uh, well, first of all, they they say that they're going to burn them at the stake, which, Mm -hmm. uh, side note, is something Indians would never do. Native Americans would never do. This wasn't a thing. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, Just because, well, like not just that, but the fact that they're tied to like, at, at that point, a totem pole. Which is mm-hmm. like, you know, a very significant part of Not some tribes' burn. cultures. <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, so, I mean, you could say there's, well, death is mentioned, I guess. Okay. But the other thing is... Again, yeah, it's another threat. Yeah. But within the song itself, there's a bit where um, the guy talks about his mother-in-law and it just it's just an excuse to mention motherhood awful as well the way they draw this mother-in-law character is she's just this very 
like large wrinkly ugly old woman and it's like ah mother-in-law jokes but make them racist i guess yeah (laughs) but um just and it all is like encapsulated in the moment where uh wendy is trying to join the celebrations but she's being told no squaw no dance no dance I'm sorry yeah. just for saying that, but like yeah. Squaw, fetch him firewood. And basically she's being excluded from all the celebrations because she's the woman and therefore she has to do all the work. And it's interesting here, she's not really referred to as a mother figure, but it's just she's a girl. Yeah. Like it's one of the few places where like her motherly status isn't really being mentioned it's just like you're a girl and therefore you should work and this is the point where she gets really pissed off with it yes because it's it doesn't fall under her duties as mother it falls under her duties as woman and suddenly she's like no now i'm pissed off and i'm like yeah that's interesting (laughs) it is actually like if you think of if you want to talk about it in terms of the gender politics of the film which we've already pretty pretty Hmm. much gone through in that Wendy is set up as this mother figure by basically every group she encounters, except for this one group who expect her to work instead of play. And she rejects that. Yeah. And yeah, it's a way of sneaking in very conservative politics and attributing to them to this other ethnic group. Yeah. Like, oh, in London, Wendy, you just would have to be a mother. You wouldn't have to collect firewood. You'd just have to be a give up your life to perform free domestic labor. Your your life, your body, everything, all these things. Yeah, that, that's all all you have to that's do. But you know, fine. if you're in different cultures, they expect you to do manual labor. You Can would you have imagine? to collect firewood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a squaw, as opposed to being the princess of this tribe who gets to dance. I suppose because she's a princess. But if you're just a regular squaw, no, you collect firewood. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 I think it is a way of making things even more conservative and very interesting that they give her these these duties and this is the only time she gets annoyed about it. Yeah, but like that aside, there's there's just not a lot this is the thing that annoys me. It's not a lot to this sequence at all, no. Yeah, there's there's not very little to it. And like, I was kind of expecting this was what we were going to focus on for the most part of it. But actually, like, yes, this is the bit that brings out the most outrage in people, and rightly so. But there's just no reason really for her to exist when you get right down to it. They definitely could have had, yeah. Anything else. Just a sequence with the pirates, a longer sequence with the mermaids. Like, there's definitely a way they could have left out these very racist, insensitive depictions of of Native Americans. Hmm. And still had a movie. I guess the movie runs, all in all, 77 minutes long. So as I said, I can see why they had to pad out the plot a little bit. But again, it could have been a different group. They didn't have to do this. Seemingly in 1953 these considerations weren't being made and if you look at what else is coming out of Hollywood in 1953 you get a lot of you're still getting westerns where Native Americans are savage barely literate also they get high with them do you remember that? oh yeah they're just sitting around smoking <laughs> it's it's probably like when i was a child i obviously didn't know that was like you know allegedly marijuana i just kind of thought like oh they're just smoking like tobacco or like smoke whatever that's fine i mean i don't know what it is but they're like sitting around traditionally smoking, I, think. I think it is though that's the thing <laughs> 
or it's some sort of intoxicant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just what what you were saying about like uh, westerns and you know that typical racist like depiction of like the Indians being like savages. Like we get like a encapsulated version of that when they capture the Lost Boys, where they're mm-hmm. using the trees like to sneak mm-hmm. up on them, and it's just you get the whole thing where they're like beating against their mouth going blah 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 that thing and yeah, um, it's all in there it's just like a very neat encapsulation of horrible racism packed into one very short sequence which is just yeah but um the last thing that i want to talk about in relation to these because i i, I just don't think there's a lot here and i don't want to focus on no. it for too much longer but there's that one moment where the chief looks at the camera basically and says burn them at the stake Burn him at stake. And you can see he's got like his headdress, which has horns on it. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, a, com- a completely red face. And you can see that yeah. thing that Disney does where they draw circles around the pupils of their eyes to kind of emphasize yeah. almost hysterical Rage. homicidal mania. Yeah. So that's there. And again, like you were saying, maybe this is just like a red herring just to trick them into thinking this is like going to be the villain. This is the bad guy. Yeah. He's certainly more intimidating than Hook. But uh, again, like you said, it's a red herring. It's just there for the sake of. And I guess I feel like more what this does more than anything. And it's incredibly damaging is just really, really, really others. Native Americans. This kind of shows you that like these are like intimidating people you you can't understand them they just get like outraged mm-hmm. even though all you're doing is trying to explain to them like rationally oh we didn't take your daughters like no i sure. don't care i'm going to like yeah and it's just this whole segment is just kind of trying to emphasize that these are other people you can't rationalize with them they're yeah. almost like they're quite dehumanized yeah okay so I think we've probably covered pretty much everything we can with this. Um, Peter Pan is an allegory towards death and uh, forced motherhood and, you know, the passage of time and... And the danger of a boy who never wants to grow up. Yeah, it's (laughs) certainly a darker... Like, the underlying themes of this film, even though it's a very light and airy film with seemingly no stakes and just seems very family friendly it's actually so very dark at the heart of it like and well disguised i would say like i don't think many kids would pick up on this although maybe subconsciously like we did definitely get a sense of how cold it is and how uh Mm -hmm. you know it's just a little unsettling and apparently this cycle is going to go on and on again like the first line of the film and the last line of the film's got that synchronicity where uh all this has happened before and it'll happen again and then the father yeah i remember doing this So, um, yeah, the horrible cycle of life and death continues. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to finish on uh, something I know that's different in the movie to the source material is at the end of the film where, as you say, Mr. Darling has the final line. Yes. And he's the one who says, I think I've seen that ship once before as a boy or whatever mm. it is. In the source material, it's the mother. It's implied that Mrs. Darling is the one who's seen Peter. Why do you think they change it to Mr. Darling? Is it because he's the one who has been so anti-fun for the first section of the movie? I think it's an attempt to give it a happy ending because I think if it was the mother to do that, then the father would remain this like hook-esque figure who is just here to like try and disrupt the fun and all that kind of Mm. thing. Whereas they're trying to imply this idea of the happy family and this is what what's hap- this is what will happen if you can 
accept the notion of growing up becoming a mother becoming a growing up like you can become a happy family you just have to accept that i think that's why um but it's interesting in the source material um so i don't know if you know this uh at the end of the film peter pan promises to come back every year to get (laughs) if you don't know this you're gonna have such a fear about so um comes back every year he comes back every year to bring wendy to neverland to help him with spring cleaning (laughs) oh my (laughs) god I did not know that. It's like, Wendy, I'm going to need a maid once a year. Can that be you? <laughs> oh, and it gets worse because um, you know you know how you were saying the fuckboy allegory uh, it maintains uh-huh. because he does it like the first two or three times. Then he forgets for about 20 years. But then he comes, <laughs> then he comes back again and expects the exact same treatment like nothing has changed. <laughs> oh, he's unbelievable. There is actually, there's one moment that I did laugh out loud at, which is where Wendy is actually getting a bit fed up with him. Mm. And he goes, but Wendy, everyone else thinks that I'm wonderful. <laughs> I mean, can't he's argue so with that. He's so surprised at any kind of pushback. But he's like, what? Why are you, what are you upset about? Everybody else thinks I'm a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't argue All those with mermaids that. who tried to drown you <laughs> think I'm pretty great. Uh, I can't get over that bit like that bit was something that even when I was a kid just did not sit right with me it's like why is he mm. just like laughing when they're like trying to drown this girl like what the hell and they even straight up say it yeah it's like, like oh, we were Peter, only trying to drown her we were only trying to drown her <laughs> Which... and he's like cool I'll hang out I'll continue to hang out with you and let you tell me how wonderful I am but again it's and this is like I know we said we were going to finish but I just wanted like that make yes. that like last point like it does emphasize the idea that this is all just fun and games but the fact that like it's ambiguous gives it the very dark undertone like is it fun and games like it's it's not clear to us as an audience at this point that this is make-believe and fun and games it's being portrayed to us and depicted to us as like truth so it's really weird and sinister that you're bursting out laughing at the potential of this girl drowning when originally you were like oh you're the best i'll show you the mermaids it'll be great (laughs) yeah and then when he flies off with tiger lily as well wendy is sort of struggling behind him do you remember that she's like oh peter wait for me and he's just like (laughs) (laughs) it just doesn't give a shit He's just zooming away. And just on top of that, just to make it so much worse at the end as well. So when he comes back 20 years later, uh, so Wendy's like, oh, I'm an adult now. I have to look after my husband. And he shows her he has a daughter, Jane, and says, oh, I'll take Jane with me. And he's like, no, no, don't do that. But eventually she's like, oh, fine, you can go as well. So then the arrangement is with Jane. Jane goes to do the spring cleaning. And then it happens again with her granddaughter. And then it just basically finishes. This is a horror movie. That's <laughs> actually a horror movie pitch. Captivity. Right, it's like, oh, the man comes every year from Neverland <laughs> and takes... It's like a generational horror movie, like yeah, Hereditary right? or something. But instead of the demon, it's like, oh, he's this boy who needs you to, like, hoover his floors and do his washing. Yeah, I love how, like, the main parallel I'm taking away from this is that Peter Pan is basically Midsummer. Like so, <laughs> Peter Pan is the, even the animal skins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skins all. <laughs> Don't be animal skins. He's the horrible boyfriend from Midsummer. Yeah. I feel like there's definitely bits of Midsummer where like they start like walking away and she's like struggling to keep up with them or yeah. trying to figure out where they're going. Exactly like Wendy, like trying to fly behind Peter Pan while he's off. Or even has the the bit like where the boyfriend is like, "Oh, you thought I forgot your birthday? Like, how could you think that?" The really weak attempt kind of placate her over, oh. like you know, and it's like she's like, "Oh, yeah. I guess, fine." So, 
Everyone else thinks I'm wonderful. If only it ended the same way. Yeah, if only it ended nice. with Wendy being like, okay, you've survived your fight with Captain Hook, but you've been really awful to me this whole time. So I'm going to feed you to the crocodile. <laughs> Burn you alive in the, in the crocodile, yeah. So you're, you're, who's the codfish now? <laughs> okay. Wendy is the new Peter Pan. Okay, so that okay. was Peter Pan. And my God, we got so much out of that. And mm-hmm. Stacey, thank you so much for the things you brought to this were just, <laughs> they blow my mind so like again i cannot thank you enough thank you so much for everything you brought to this discussion thank you oh, no thanks for having me it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun for a film that i as i said did not particularly enjoy but find very rich and very interesting from a mm, yeah it's good for disney that. and horror perspective yeah yeah so i have one or two final questions i do this with everyone who comes on this just like mm-hmm. small things so first i just wanted to ask what's your favorite disney movie What's my favorite Disney? Oh, that's a really good question. I should have been prepared for this, really. <laughs> As I said, like in the 90s, I grew up watching all the Disney princess ones. Definitely have a soft spot for Aladdin. Yeah, Aladdin's great. Really, really loved Aladdin growing up. Um, probably if we did an episode on that, I'd have similar things to say about gender <laughs> roles and lot to be said, ethnic yeah. <laughs> representations. But uh, a lot of great songs, a lot of great songs. Mary Poppins as well. Really? Mary Poppins would be up there, yeah? Mary Poppins would be well up there for me. Again, a lot really? of banger songs. Uh, good politics. Yes. You're like, women should vote. You're like, yes, they should. I always find it really surprising. I remember the first time I watched that after... So I, obviously I watched it when I was a kid, but the first time I watched it as an adult, which would have been around when I was in college, I had completely forgotten about the whole like uh, suffragette part of it because I think as a kid, I just didn't... I didn't know what suffragettes were. I just kind of thought like, sure. oh, she, like, she likes dressing up in sashes, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I was yeah. really surprised to find that was in a movie that came out at like in the 60s, wasn't it? It's... Uh, I was going to say like 63, but I might be wrong. Um, but there's um, even the end of the movie. They're like, hey, you got to put your money in the bank and help the bank be richer than it already is. And he's like, no, I want to spend my money to feed the birds. You're like, he's right. <laughs> well, I mean, we sure. We should be, yeah, all be yeah. voting. <laughs> we should not be making the bank. We should not be enriching banks. We should be giving women the vote, feeding the birds, flying kites. <laughs> the end of the movie. Let's go fly a kite. Anti-capitalist. Yeah, that's mm. that's how you do like that's how you celebrate like play and and exuberance. <laughs> is every now and again you take the day off and you go fly a kite. You don't go to Never Neverland and pretend that you could be a child forever. Do you think Dick Van Dyke is Mary Poppins' fuckboy? <laughs> um, if anything, it's maybe the other way around. Right? I was thinking like, that kind of is. Town. Yeah, <laughs> he's not expecting to see her. He's like, Mary. Oh my god, it's been a while since we went to the. But that's empowering for her then. That's great. Fair play to her. (laughs) Well, they seem to be at least somewhat agreed on the terms of her coming in and out of town as she needs as she needs to He he gives her the little salute when she's like on her way out. He's like, Yep, see you next time. I think he kinda knows this the deal. He's like, This is what she does. I can't keep her here with me forever. Hmm. Yeah, I think the she, whole... She comes and goes. The whole segment with, like, the chimneys popping in out of that, very symbolic, obviously. Now, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, Looking okay, back so... on it now. Anyway, sorry. Yes, so, yeah. Aladdin and Mary Poppins. Love them. Sorry, one last question. So, mm-hmm. I know you're you're obviously... You love cinema and film. I know this already. I know you're not as enamored with horror as, like, myself or maybe some of my other cohorts, but would you have a favourite horror mm-hmm. film? 
Ooh, what's my favorite horror film? I mean, this is a good question. There's there's so many like sub genres of horror that it's yeah. hard to think. Like the thing that came immediately to my mind, weirdly enough, was like Rosemary's Baby. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> right, or even um, Repulsion. If Repulsion counts as a horror movie, as in I thought I think of Roman Polanski movies immediately. Just in terms of maybe some of the things we talked about there, right? A woman's mm. role in the world. What is a woman? Is it to be a mother? Rosemary's baby, what it means to be a mother. I find it very interesting that you probably count that very highly amongst your horror movies. I was just like, is that because we're talking about Peter Pan and my aversion to this idea that Wendy has to be a mother to these kids? Like, And then Rosemary's baby. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that tells you a lot about where my, my reading of Peter Pan comes from. That I'm like, oh, Rosemary's Baby, the most horrifying <laughs> horror film I can imagine. It is pretty horrifying. Um, Particularly for uh, the female gender, I would say. I remember like I wasn't quite as affected by pretty much every girl in the classroom when we were studying that in college. But I still like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like Rosemary's Baby, Repulsion also, which is just about this woman living in London who seems quite traumatized by i love that movie it's so good it's so good it's so good i'd recommend both of them with you know mm. some some content warnings that it's they're both pretty upsetting but amazing uh to think about this this person making two of the most feminist horror movies i've ever seen yes this is true <laughs> that that's a whole discussion for another time i'm not it's a it's another conversation but both like very extremely excellent horrifying unsettling movies in the same way that Peter Pan is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the last question I have for you is, um, now this is a weird one, and it's again, like a, one of those things that spurred on this entire podcast. Is there a moment in any uh, Disney film that you saw when you were a child, that, or even recently, that you found like really unsettling, that really disturbed you, or you thought was really scary? Oh. Like something that just like really got under your skin when you were a kid, or recently? Um... Do you know the first thing I thought of as you were saying that was, do you know in the sword and the stone when the witch starts like transforming into different kinds of oh, creatures? Yeah. I think there's like a loss of control. Like she can't quite control the fact that she's doing it by the end. That's something I Does always find really dragon? unsettling. Yes, at the end of it, she turns yeah. into a dragon. And I remember myself being a little bit unsettled by that too. Um, yeah, and I don't know why. It doesn't bother me that Merlin is shape-shifting, but the way she shape-shifts I find very unsettling. I think maybe it's the way she is characterised as the villain. They probably do animate it to be like more upsetting to look at. I wonder if it's because it's reactionary, because everything she changes mm. into is kind of a reaction to what he changes into. Like, it's something that yes. tops him. Yes, yes, yes. So maybe in, in, it's not involuntary per se, but it is kind of like external forces are what's causing her to transform in a sense yeah yeah I, I think her transformations in that kind of spooked me a little bit also like Fantasia's scary <laughs> anything with inanimate objects is kind of <laughs> spooky right like night on vault yeah yeah the, the classic thing I think. the sorcerer's apprentice Fantasia segment spooky uh the, Dumbo horrifying that's the, the last one everything in Dumbo I never want to watch it again it's so upsetting Oh, the entire that entire pink elephants thing is nightmare fuel. Uh, it it's still it still holds up as terrifying, like as people say it is. Like it's as I said, never want to watch it again. <laughs> like if you watch that unexpectedly, that'll freak you out. Like really, no, don't like it. Don't like it at all. And they're mean to the elephant, which I also is horrifying on another level. Yes, the yeah, of course. Level. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, those would be mine. <laughs> 
Awesome. Great answers. Oh, so, so again, Stacey, thank you so much. You did an incredible job here. I'm sure everyone listening to this is pretty much blown away by everything that you brought to the table. If they want to hear more about the kind of work you do or read more, where can they go? How can they find you? Um, I mean, probably the best thing to do would be just to follow me on the socials. I'm on Twitter and also on Letterboxd, which would be good for like my movie reviews. I try to kind of log everything that I watch under Silver Sink Road, which I'm sure you'll put in the show notes. And that's the same username on Twitter as well. Yeah. And they are very good. They are, I, I actually joined Letterboxd just because you you joined it like if i'm being honest like so like <laughs> your your movie reviews are absolutely excellent i will say i like my letterbox logs i have recently watched what mouse hunt i revisited mouse hunt <laughs> really enjoyed it another kind of horrifying movie also by disney <laughs> actually that's interestingly enough mouse hunts worth uh, worth watching as an adult i believe and nice. uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of like a bit of everything. So I just log everything I watch and you can find me there. Yeah, I can definitely heartily recommend. I would definitely recommend to check out uh, Stacey's letterbox. It'll, you will not be sorry. Very entertaining. <laughs> even, even on films you have no interest in watching, she will make you interested. I can promise that. Thanks for saying that. Thank you very much, Stacey. And everyone listening, see you next time. Bye. Bye.